0: Well, good morning. Good to have you this morning. Good to worship together. What a what a beautiful day! Did anybody make it out to the? Uh, did you get to make it out to the concert Friday? Man, it was so good, wasn't it? Just the local talent and stuff is just phenomenal. And you know, you know, we we tried to book a band. We we brought a couple bands in, and and this year, every time I tried to book somebody, there was some conflict in the schedule. It just never would work out. So finally, we were like, well, maybe it's not supposed to work out that way, and maybe we're just supposed to. Do it locally. And man, what a blessing it was. It was just amazing to, to hear and see the, the, the churches get together, the different musicians together from different churches, comprising kind of a different worship teams and things like that. It was just really a cool evening of unity. You know, I think that unity is something that we need to constantly be reminded of, right? And I'll remind us this morning that we are not the church here at the Rock Church. We are a fellowship, right? We're a fellowship that happens to meet here. Within this place, in this context, we're a, we're a group of believers, but we are a part of a greater church, right? We're part of a, a, a church that, that is actually global in its, uh, in its position, in, in, in its reach, and, and what it's doing. So, so remember, church is not a building, it is not a denomination, it is not a sermon. You didn't go to church this morning, you brought church with you to the building where the church gathers, right, so that we might encourage one another, so that we might worship and praise, so that we might then go out the doors to do the ministry that God has for us within the community. Remember that what we do, what you do, and what I do during the week as we go out is what the church is doing as it goes out into the world during the week. So let's be mindful of that. All right, so we're continuing in in Mark so turn your Bible on, get a Bible from the pew in front of you, open your Bible, whatever that looks like for you. We're in chapter 10, starting in verse 32 in our ongoing uh, journey through the gospel of Mark. So last week, uh, Mitch preached up on the mountain, um, Mike preached here, and, and they preached on, on the story of the, uh, the rich young ruler right, of, of, the, of the young guy that, 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 wanted, that approached Jesus wanting to know, man, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And then when he realized what his heart issue was, that his heart issue was money, his heart issue was was, was his stuff, and believing that his identity came in his stuff, he was unwilling to let go of those things and to follow Jesus. One of the great things I think about that story is it says that Jesus looked at him and as he told him what it was that he really needed, it says that he, he loved him. And, and Jesus loved him enough to reach out and to touch that heart issue that he had, to reach out and, and, and meet him actually at his point of conflict with the gospel and to offer him an opportunity to come in, unfortunately He chose something different in that story, and that should keep us mindful. But in verse 32, let's let's look into this and and we'll get started here. It says they were on the road, they were going up to Jerusalem, and Jesus was walking ahead of them, and they were amazed, and those who followed were afraid. Jesus always goes ahead of us. Now, now this is the third time that Jesus, they're, they're on their, their, their route. Jesus has, they've been all through the whole region. They've been all over the place, Tyre, all the places. They've been up into the realm of the Gentiles. They've, and, and for three years now, Jesus has been traveling in this area, and he's been doing miracles. He's been teaching. He, uh, throngs of people are following him and, and coming for healing and to be touched by him and to hear what he has to say. And now he is kind of basically making his final approach to Jerusalem, and he knows full well what that entails, that that entails his death, that he is going to his death. And, and, and everybody here, the, the, the disciples and those who are following him seem to understand this because they're both amazed that he's headed that direction, and they're also afraid. They're afraid, they're afraid for what's gonna happen. I mean, remember, these are a people that are under Roman occupation. And Roman occupation could be incredibly severe. It was, it was harsh at times. Um, I was talking to Anna and she was telling me that she was reading a thing about Roman occupation and, and a lot of times when the Romans moved into a territory, the first thing they did was, was crucify the first 10 men they saw of that region. Can you imagine? Can you imagine if the Romans, if we were under Roman occupation and and Rome, Roman soldiers came into Sheridan and, and they, they, they just crucified the first ten men that they came across? There would be none of us here that wouldn't be impacted on some most likely personal level, even in a, in a community of our size, right? But but this was the Romans and, and, and so Jesus is going ahead of them and he, and he always does. And hopefully we're following, even in fear, a little bit of the unknown. Now, now obviously, you know, fear is this interesting thing. Fear is not the it, 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 courage itself. Maybe I should say is not the absence of fear, right? John Wayne said it this way. He said, he said, you know, courage is being scared to death and saddling up anyway, right? it's knowing, even though it's not that there's this absence of fear, but it's a moving forward in the face of fear. Joshua 1.9 says this, it says, have I not commanded you, be strong and courageous. Do not be frightened. Do not be dismayed. For the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. And, and so this is an assurance that we have is that regardless of what we're going into, we're, we're, we're all the people today who are moving into the unknown. And, and, and we could be a fearful people, and, but we don't want to be dominated. We're not to be dominated by fear. When fear is dominating our lives and our minds, we, we, it always leads us to irrational thoughts and actions. When, when, when we're afraid of what's going to happen or how this might Pan out or how this might go or might not go, or, or what's going to happen it causes us to to try to control and to, to grab hold of things and, and try to control outcomes It's incredibly frustrating because anytime you' you're, you're trying to control something that's outside of your scope of control it's a super frustrating place to live in and, and it's not fruitful and it's not good in our relationships it, it doesn't work in any way and, and so how do we not live in that kind of fear of the unknown? Because there's no guarantees for any of us. There, there's just no guarantees for tomorrow. If it's one thing I know now is that there's, there's no guarantees for anybody for tomorrow. That literally, none of us know what day you might wake up to. And how do we move forward in that? Well, the only way to move forward in that is to know that we have a God who is able And and, and a God who is in front of us, who who is leading the way. And it says, taking the 12 again, he began to tell them what was to happen to him. Saying, see, we are going up to Jerusalem and the son of man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the scribes and they will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles and they will mock him and spit on him, and flog him, and kill him. <clears throat> so this is the third time that Jesus tells them what's going to happen to him. This is how it's going to go. This isn't going to be pleasant. It's not going to be good. This isn't easy. He's telling them that both, of the, both the Jews and the Gentiles are going to participate in his death everyone. Who put Jesus on the cross? I did. You did. We all did. There's been an incredible amount of persecution that's happened in the world towards the Jewish people through history because people blame the Jews for crucifying Jesus but, and use that as a, as a means for justification. But that's not the case. Jesus is telling them here it's both the Jews and the Gentiles. The Jews are going to convict him, and they're going to hand him over to the Romans, and the Romans are going to crucify him. And he's telling them, this is how it's going to go. This is how things are going to end. But but here's the cool thing, is the last line in that, it says this, and after three days, he will rise. Amen. He'll rise after three days. You see the hope our hope is in the resurrection the hope of the believer is the resurrection the hope of the unbeliever is the gospel but when you're a believer and you've trusted jesus your hope now isn't in the things of this world it's in the resurrection it's in the god who says that he is able to take everything and put it all back together and and despite what happens in this world or how much struggle we go through, or whatever that looks like, that he is a God who is going to redeem it all, that he is going to make it right, that he is going to redeem Eden itself, and he's going to set us forever into a condition and a place that we all want to be, which is a place apart from suffering, apart from death, apart from pain, apart from all of the struggles that we we face here. Peter reminds us of this. He says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. That that we've been born again into a living hope. We were born first into into a place of hopelessness, into a place of death and despair. But when we're born again, when we're in Christ, when we've said yes to Jesus, when His his death on the cross, His covering for our sin has been recognized, and we repent and we turn towards Him, we are born again into a living hope through the resurrection. And it's the power of the resurrection that we now live in. Job understood it. This ancient, ancient man, thousands of years ago, thousands of years before Jesus came on the scene. We don't even know how long before the Jewish people came onto the scene that Job wrote this, but in Job 19.25, he said this. He said, I know that my Redeemer lives, and one day he will stand upon the earth, and yet though my flesh decay, yet in my flesh I will see him. I will see him myself and not another. It's this idea that his hope... When we read the book of Job, we recognize that this is an incredible book of suffering for a guy that didn't deserve any of it, that just suffering and pain and difficulty, right? They're allowed into his life, and it comes into his life, but he knows the bigger picture, and he understands that his, his, his pain here and his struggle here is temporary, but that God has an eternal plan for him. And see, when we live in that kind of hope, That's the kind of hope that's gonna get you through today. That's the kind of hope that's gonna deliver you through the struggles and the the pain and the suffering that we're gonna have in this world. See, if we just continue to look at the present, we're gonna miss eternity. We're gonna miss that eternal perspective that God wants us to have if we're just focused here in the the temporal and in our pain and in our struggles. If we're fixated on that, we'll miss the eternal perspective. But when we begin to look to eternity, it's there that we really learn how to live. It's there that we learn, in light of eternity, how to live presently so that our lives might have an eternal impact. So it's the resurrection. This is our hope. This is what the church clings to. And then it says right after that, verse 35, that James and John, the sons of Zebedee, they came up to him and they said to him, "Teacher." We want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. Now, that's an interesting way to put it, isn't it? Like, like, like every good kid will phrase this question, right? Hey, just uh, say yes, and I'll tell you in just a second what I want to ask for. Say yes now, right? But you know it's, it's interesting because they're saying this in light of what he's just told them, that he's about to go and that he's about to die. And they're, they're like, you know what? Just, maybe their heart is, is just this idea of like, we know that what you just told us is painful, but we're in. We're in all the way. And so we want, we want to ask something of you. Um, and we just want you to, to just think about this and just say yes. And Jesus says, well what do you want me to do for you? First tell me. Let's hear this, right? And they said to him, grant us to set one at your right hand and one at your left in your glory. So they're saying, you know, hey, you're, you're, we're, we're recognizing you to be who, who you are, that, that, that you're coming into your glory. And when you come into your glory, um... We want to sit right in the places of prominence, one of us at your right and one of us at your left. That's how in this thing we are. That's how committed we are to this. That's how how much we're going to go through this with with you. And it says, Jesus said to them, he says, you do not know what you're asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink or to be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized? And they said to him, we are able. And Jesus said to them, the cup that I drink, you will drink. And the baptism with which I am baptized, you will be baptized. But to sit at my right or hand or left is not mine to grant. But it is for those whom it has been prepared. So Jesus asked them. he says, look, do you, can you drink this cup that I'm about to drink? And the cup in, in, in biblical terms, was, was this thing that could be kind of both ways. It had this idea of, of being kind of um, satisfied in or, or, or satiated in or to take in. And it could be blessing or it could be suffering. There could be cups of blessing that are spoken of in the Bible, and there are cups of suffering. At a Jewish betrothal, when a, when a young Jewish man asked a, a young lady to marry him, he would pour a cup of wine and then offer her to, to be his wife. And if she took from that cup and she drank from it, that was her yes. And that was her, her entrance into the covenant. And that idea that, that, that she was entering into that covenant relationship. And at that time, for the Jews, uh, the betrothal was, was really kind of a legal thing. Um, uh, exchange and, and and their marriage was they were basically kind of almost as good as married at that point, even though there were still steps and, and things that were were gonna be going through. <clears throat> Jesus talked about this cup in the garden. And, and he asked the father this: he said, might this cup be, be lifted from me, but not my will, but your will be done. And and when it says that, when it says May, may, may this cup be taken from me or whatever. It, it's not the idea that Jesus, that, that Jesus is asking the father to remove the pain and the suffering of his death from him. He's not really saying, can we sidestep this whole thing and not go through with this? The, the terms in, in, in the Greek mean this, can, can, the, can the amount of time that this takes be minimized? Is kind of what he's saying. Like, when we move through this, can we move through this really quickly? But not my will, your will be done. Could, could this happen on, on quicker terms? But Jesus knew full well what he was going to go through. But he said, look, if there's, if there's another way, if there's another. And the answer, I think that that question was for us. And The, the, the answer is no, there is no other way. If there was another way, then then. then a good father would, would obviously would take it, but there was no other way. And, and so Jesus, is, is, as he struggles with the reality is in his human condition of his death, he drinks from this cup of suffering. When we take communion, we, we take and we drink of this cup, it says. And this cup represents the blood of the covenant, right? And, 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 and when we drink of that, that's our agreement really into this covenant relationship, this betrothal this, this kind of this picture. So they said, you know, yes, we, we really are. We're ready to do this. And, and Jesus then tells them, look, you're, you're going you're to drink from this cup. And you're going to also be baptized into this baptism. And remember the word, the Greek word for baptize is baptizo. That it's this idea of being immersed in, completely immersed in. And, and so as Jesus talks to them about this cup of suffering and this baptism, what he's saying is that, is that you're going to be completely immersed in some difficult and hard times. That you also are going to drink out of a cup of suffering and you're going to be immersed in difficulties and hard times and struggles. And, and I, honestly, I, I appreciate that. I, I appreciate the reality of what the Bible teaches that Jesus teaches us that in this world, that we will have trouble. Now, the message of the gospel is never just come to Jesus and everything's going to be great and wonderful and fine and easy. Quite the opposite, right? In reality, if we, if we truly make a decision to follow Jesus with the whole of who we are, it'll be, it's the most difficult thing that you ever do. It's in complete contradiction to you and who you are and the sinful nature that lives inside of you and me and the world that we live in, it's, it's, it's in complete contradiction. But it's good. And, and even our struggles and the, the, the difficulties that we go through, we can, we can take heart and understand and know that, that this is a God who's promising to work good in our lives through the pain and the hardship. That when it's hard, if he tells us, he tells us that if we, if we push through with him, if we persevere with him, that he's a God who's faithful to work all things for the good. For those who love him and who are called according to his purposes, right? Don't, don't hear too many times that that verse is misquoted. We stop at the God works all things for the good. God does not work all things for the good. There are too numerous to count things that happen out in the world that never get worked for the good. The only reason that they don't get worked for the good is because they're not given over to him to use them for the good. He's capable of working all things for the good, but it's to those who love him, who understand who he is, who who follow him, who trust him in the hard times. When we wake up and we find ourselves in a place that we don't understand, we didn't ask for, and we don't get We continue to trust and believe and know that this God is a God who says, I'll deliver you through to the other side. I'm going to take you across the Jordan. I'm going to take you through the sea. All of these things, just these events being also imagery for us today to understand that I'm not the first one who's ever stepped a foot in the hard times. And beginning to understand and comprehend that this is a God who didn't just relegate suffering to the human race, but said, I will enter into your condition, your humanity, and I will deal with the problem that you have because you can't. It's unlike anything else. The gospel is unlike anything else. But you see, for John and James here, They're using the wrong standard, they're using the wrong measurement. They're they're thinking that it's about how good of disciples that they are, how worthy they might be to sit on his right and his left. You see, we measure wrongly. We're so works-based. We think that it's about what we're doing all the time that, that justifies us or that makes us good or makes us a good Christian. And, and so they believe that, that they should have these positions of prominence. Remember in, in, in chapter 9, verses 34 to 36, if we backed up just a little bit in Mark, we'll see that they've already had an argument about this, right? Jesus was like, hey, what were you guys talking about back there? And they were like, nothing, nothing. They don't even want to tell him that nothing. No, nothing, don't worry about it. <clears throat> well, we were talking about who's the best. We were talking about who's the greatest. And Jesus is like, well... You know, if you want to be the greatest, you have to become the least, right? That this is an upside-down, backwards kingdom. It's, it doesn't work the way that the world does. It's in contradiction to, to the world and what the world says. If you want to be the greatest, you have to become the least. And here they are again. And, and it goes on to say that when the 10 heard it, they began to be indignant at James and John. What are you guys talking about? You guys are back at it again. You guys think you're the best all the time when you know that we're, I'm actually the best. You know, right? I'm the best. No, I am. I mean, can you imagine, like, listen to this? I'm the greatest. No, I am. I'm the greatest. No, I am. They sound like they're three, you know. But anyway, this is who we are. And they were indignant and they were mad. And Jesus called them to him and he said to them, You know that there are those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles And the Gentiles lorded over them, and their great ones exercised authority over them. But it shall not be so among you. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant. And whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. So it's an interesting picture that I was thinking of, because this is what James and John had kind of envisioned But this is what kind of really happened. If we we looked up forward into chapter 15, when we get there, we'll see that there was one that was on his right and one on his left, two thieves, it says, two criminals. And one mocked him, and one turned to him. What one said to him, hey would you just remember me when you come into your kingdom? I recognize you to be a king with the kingdom. I believe you, you who you are. And I believe that by your permission, maybe possibly, would you just, could you even just remember me? And Jesus told him this, I'll do you one better, right? Today, this very day, you'll be with me in paradise. Alistair Beggs does a great sermon on this. And and, and he, I won't do it justice, but, but he talks about how, can you imagine that day when that thief came in and, and there, you know, the proverbial, you know, pearly gates and Peter's there. And he's like, hey, um, hey what, what are you doing here? And he's like, I don't know. <laughs> and he's like, well, we we'll, what, you know, what, hang on, let me go get my manager. And he goes, he gets the manager, you know, manager. He says, Ah, uh, well, yeah. How, what are you doing here? He says, I, I don't know. He says, How'd you get here? He said, The guy on the middle cross said I could come. That's it. See, the other guy had the opportunity the same, but he chose to mock. He chose to curse, not to turn, and to believe and to trust, and and, and to to die to self. One responded, and one did not. And the one who did not, it was his choice. It was his decision. But neither of them deserved Jesus' favor, but the one who simply asked got it. So when Jesus tells us, he says, he, says he, he, he lines this out for us, and he says this. He says, look, whoever would be first among you has to be the slave of all. Whoever would be great among you must be the servant. This is the standard that we're given. This is the standard by which we, we would measure and see. If we're going to measure something, we have to have a standard to go by, right? A foot isn't a very good foot if we're all using our feet to measure because we all have different sized feet. But that's what a foot is about. But you had to have a, a, a measure, a standard of measure. We had to come up with a, with a measuring device or a tape or, or whatever to, measure, to have a standard foot so that we could all then measure and look and see what our measurements looked like. So we might say this. We might say, well, you know what? We go to church every single week. But it's not attendance. That's not the measure. We might say, you know what? I go to Bible study twice a week. But knowledge isn't the measure. You could say, well, I'm a pastor but it's not about position. You could say, well, we give every single week, but it's not financial. We could say, well, we're nice people, but maybe we're selfish nice people. The standard is how much we serve. That's the standard. That's what's been laid out here If we wanna know how you and I are doing at this thing, then we measure it by how we're serving, how we're serving others, what we're doing, how we're serving in our family, how we're serving in our community, how we're serving in our church. Do we just come to church? Or do we participate in church life? Do we create a community here or do we just create a service? Because community looks like beginning to serve one another. It begins to look like taking our time, our treasure, and our talents and investing it into something that we believe in and being a part of something greater than ourselves. This is what it looks like to serve within the body. And this is the standard By which God has laid out that we can know how well we're doing at this thing. And so it's a funny thing, isn't it? It's really a funny thing if you think about how we tend to think about church. And so we could say this: we could say, I go to church every week, I write a check every week, then during the week, I go to two Bible studies. And that would be no currency much. Those are good things. Don't get me wrong. And if we're serving, those are probably going to be parts of our our walk. But if that's just what it was, if that's all that we were doing, we would think we were doing great, wouldn't we? But that's not the standard by which greatness is set. The standard by which greatness is set is how we serve. Acts twenty verse thirty five and everything I did I showed you by this kind of hard work. We must help the weak, remembering the words the Lord Jesus Himself said: "It is more blessed to give than to receive." See, this is the truth. Promise you this: start to serve. It's not going to be convenient. It's going to be hard. It's going you're going to have every single excuse and thought to have what else you've got to do, how busy your life is, what all is going on. What what that's the reality of this thing. To serve is never easy. And, and then sometimes we set out to be a servant, and that's all fine and good till somebody treats you like one, right? And then you're out, done. Treat me like that. But to serve is hard work. It's not easy. Because we have to push back against our own selfishness. We have to prioritize things in our lives to do it because there's going to be plenty that is filling our calendar. But I can tell you something about me, and this is the truth. I make time for what's important to me. I always do. But it's hard work. But then it goes on and it tells us this, it's blessing. It's more blessed to give than to receive. And, and so when we when we begin to to live this out in our lives, we actually find ourselves where we thought we were going to be inconvenienced, where we thought it was going to be just a, a just oh a tough thing and horrible, and it was going to cost me this or whatever. We find ourselves to actually be blessed as we do that. We find meaning and purpose in our giving. We find meaning and purpose in our serving. Matthew 5, 16, in the same way, let your light shine before others that they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. Why do we do this? Because we put God on display. When we serve in our community, when it doesn't make sense, when people are like, why would you do that? We know you're busy. Why would you give like that? Why would you give of yourself like that? Why do you do that? It gives God glory. It begins to point people towards a God. And and that, that were where they're like, there's something different about you. You see, God's glory is something that we get to just take and, and, and we get to deflect it back right up to him. And so to understand God's glory, we, we, we wanna understand it in this way that that's, that's how he's made famous before the world. That's how the world sees him is when it lights up so bright that they're like, wow, that's, that's different. It gives God glory when we serve. Philippians 2:4: "Not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interest of others." It, t- it takes us out of selfishness. See, the path out of selfishness is, is the one that we're all battling with in here, because we're all selfish, because of our sinful nature. This is a reality of who I am. I'm selfish. But you see, this is the thing that God is is giving us. God is always trying to move us out of self and into a place of selflessness. This is what it looks like to be conformed into the image of Christ who who came, who gave everything on our behalf, who gave up his his position, his his place. It says that, that he humbled himself and he became like us so that he could come and serve us. The institutions that God has given us, marriage is one that's, that's meant to take us outside of our selfishness, to begin to live life and serve someone else and meet their needs. Children, then out of that also, too, are, we begin to wear our heart on the outside and we begin to live life for something outside and something greater than just ourselves. God is always trying to move us out of this place of selfishness. Romans 12:1. Therefore, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. Worship isn't just songs. It's a a lifestyle. It's, It's taking everything that we do and doing it to the glory of God. And we offer ourselves as a living sacrifice, not a dead sacrifice that's void of choice, but a living sacrifice that can choose to jump up off the altar and go do its own thing. But you see, when we do it as a living, not because we're compelled to do it, but because we desire to do it, because we know there's goodness in it, then that is true and proper worship when we're serving the Lord out of that spot. John 12, whoever serves me must follow me, and where I am, my servant also will be, and my Father will honor the one who serves me. What we're doing here matters, and it matters for eternity. So the Bible teaches very clearly that what we're doing here has reward on the other side. It's either going to be a reward or it's going to burn up on the altar, one of the two. And motive and all kinds of things go into a heart that's truly serving in the right way. But it's interesting. I want to point out something here at the end. It becomes. It needs to become a lifestyle, it, a lifestyle so much that maybe we don't even know when we're really even doing it because it's just such a habit, and, and it's a ministry not to the popular. This isn't a popularity contest. This is to the least of these. It, it's to those that the rest of the world would marginalize. The rest of the world would, would, would kick them to the curb and say they have no meaning and no value and no hope. the church's job to come in and to break down those barriers, to break down every single barrier of hierarchy that would say I'm better than you on some level and recognize that it's all level at the cross, that we're all in need of God's grace, that none of us are worthy. And because of that, we would recognize this final thing here that Jesus said, for even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many, to purchase you and I, that he came and he washed feet and he served and he humbled himself. And this is who we're supposed to be following. The big question is, how are we doing? If we take the standard of measure by which he's given us and he says, how? And we say, how in my life, Lord, how am I doing with serving? How am I serving in my family? How am I serving in my community? How am I serving in my church? Am I taking the gifts, the talents that you've given me? Am I using them for others? Or am I burying that talent? This church will be as effective in the kingdom as we make a commitment to serve. If we don't serve, if, if we just show up on Sunday and we just have a meeting then we won't be effective in his kingdom. But if we truly decide to have church life, to, to participate, to serve one another here in this, to serve our children, to serve the ministries, to serve the community, to serve the lost, that's how effective we're going to be. See, we've become a church too much in, in the modern age that, that where we, wanna, where we just think of, of church as something I attend and, and, and the ministries of the church are hired out, but that's not the picture of the church. As a matter of fact, honestly, and I say this tentatively, but my job isn't to do ministry. My job is to equip you to do ministry. That's what it says in Ephesians. To equip the body, the, the building up of the body for the ministry that God has for us. That's how the church is supposed to work. So we're not throwing any rocks here. I'll let everybody here evaluate for themselves how are you doing with that. How are you participating in the church? Are you participating in actually church life or are you just coming to church? It's not my standard, it's his. How well are you serving? Lord, we just thank you for this day. We thank you for your goodness and we thank you that you know us and that you love us. We thank you that you know every shortcoming that's in this room. And that you've done more than what is adequate to to save us, to um, equip us, to send us, to to use us for your plans and your purposes and your goodness. And Lord, we're asking that that you would help us, Lord, in the midst of our struggles, in the midst of my selfishness, Lord, I'm asking that you would make me a more generous and giving person. Help us, Lord, that we might really truly walk as the church as you intended us to walk, that uh, that we might serve within our families, within our community, and within this church body. That we might then also serve the greater church body. That we might break down barriers that are between the churches, that we might be one unified body dedicated to the service of this town, this community that you put us in. So Lord, there's so many distractions, so many things, so many things that vie for our time and our and our, uh, our affection. Lord, may we look only to you, and may we live selflessly, Lord. And may we reap the blessing and the benefit of that as well. So I'm just praying over each and every person here this morning, Lord, and just what you have for them, what, what their ministry is, what their gifts are, what their area of, of service is, Lord, and I'm praying that you would bless them and that you would set them free into that. And they would experience the wholeness and the goodness and the, and the blessing. As we follow you, create us more into your own image, Lord. Help us to push back against the image of Adam that's in us, Lord, and help us to just be drawn and pulled to the image of you that you created us to be. May we truly live in the manner that you've called us. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.